The title of today's talk is The One-Dimensional Polity. I use the word polity, which is a rather vague and ambiguous word, because I, I want to cover a large territory. By polity, I mean uh, our community, including our environment and its governance. That's a, a definition in the dictionary. Uh, I mean everything that's around us, really. You see, yesterday I talked about our one-dimensional self, how we can build ourselves. I use the Lego tower as a representation. Build ourselves up in just one dimension. That's all the dimension that counts. That's for ourselves. Today I want to talk about how we do the same thing to the world around us. And of course, to consider the alternative. How do we open the doors to a multidimensional polity? The, the great problem I've had, and I don't know that I've solved it, with today's topic, that it's so vast, you know, covers everything. There's no way to say anything comprehensive about it. So I'll, I'll just pick up a few illustrations from various areas and try to make as coherent a picture as I can. I'll start talking about one-dimensionality, how we impose this one-dimensionality on the polity, on the world. And I'll first talk about the political area, then about the social area, and then about the environmental area. And in the second part, I'll talk about how do we make this multidimensional. So, politically. In the political arena, our insistence, stubbornness to make it unidimensional is flagrant. All that seems to matter, politics seems to be reduced to, will our candidate win or lose? It doesn't, nothing else matters. If the candidate indulges in distortions, lies, uh, promises that he or she cannot fulfill, well, it's part of a process, you know. What can we do? Unless they do that, they cannot win. This is a price for victory. Uh, I, I'm afraid I go along with that at times, you know? Yeah, Raquel can testify to that. <laughs> it, it's bound to happen when we get hooked onto these polarities. We win or lose, you know? As a corollary of this, once the election is done, we disengage, we've done our work. And as we disengage, the established political and economic elites take over. The 
they have the field all for themselves. And our country, in the end, is just reduced to a two-dimensional piece of cloth, you know, the flag, which in fact is also an accounting, a one-dimensional accounting of the states that constitute the country. Standing at the top of a one-dimensional flagpole that we wave. And that's it. That's the country. I may be exaggerating, but there's a tendency for that. You know. You know. As to, you know, one could talk for hours about this. And I may not have the most flagrant examples, but there are many. And what we do in the political arena, we do it in the social arena. Just, just to point out a, a, one, one item, perhaps. Take schools and universities. You know, I was talking yesterday about students being graded on the one-dimensional scale of grades, numbers, one to ten or whatever it is, uh, A to D, whatever it is, E. There's E and F. Oh, there's F too, right. <laughs> okay. Well, schools are treated the same way, you know. They are ranked in a, in a linear order according to the grades those students get. And a few other things, you know, whether they, they win or lose the, the football. Now they want to have a, a, a college championship. I, I heard in the radio when it was Thursday. Now they're going to, the college football is also going to be arranged in a linear order because it's unbearable that you cannot tell who is the first one. You cannot nowadays. <laughs> And, of course, you know, this ranking of schools uh, is meant to, and it does indeed, predict success of the students. And success means, of course, enhanced income, the ultimate unidimensional measure of it all. That's what the bottom line is meant to be. Everything, academic success, whatever, success at work, military victory, political victory, translates into money. At least in this culture. This is not universal, but in this culture. And, and when we do that, everything else that happens, everything else that happens to our environment, to our social fabric, to our politics, 
that may not be appropriate, that's okay. It's collateral damage. Because we are treating the world as if we were at war. And, and as if it really all that counts is the bottom line. And of course, this applies to the environment as well, very markedly so. But, you know, without generalizing too much, let me just talk in concrete terms. My, my own experience of the environment, my most common one, besides the well, yeah, the times I go on, on a bicycle, too. Now it's a bit too cold for that. But more commonly, I just look out the window of my study. And what, I look, what do I look at? Well, in this one-dimensional mode, I, I don't fall for that, but I, I could, hey, that's my property. I can see the backyard is my property. This is very common, of course, in, in the language, too. My property really means that everything is reduced to a two-dimensional piece of paper, right? The title. But the title of ownership is not really that two-dimensional. It's mostly unidimensional. Because what really matters is the monetary appraisal of that property. The choice is there. Prevailing in the property, in the, in the culture, is going for the money. It was interesting in um, Wednesday, not long ago, somebody who's not here today. Um, mentioned that a couple friend of hers were telling her about how they felt nowadays. Turns out that the marriage is going very well. I mean, they're very happy with it. Uh, they like the house. They like where they live. Um, the family is. Uh, they have good relations with family. But. They were worried. Why? Because the appraisal of the property had gone down. So uh, the person who reported this said, but are you planning to sell the property? No, no, no. There's no idea of selling the property. <laughs> it's simply that it doesn't, it's not worth it as much as they hoped it would be worth. I mean, this is the culture. And, and these people are people in good faith. I'm not being critical. I don't know them, but not being critical of them in any way. They are, they are responding the way they are supposed to respond. There is a, a, a philosophy that's supposed to string all these things together. And that uh, sometimes as a friend the economist knows here, <laughs> is the philosophy of the market. 
I, I picked up an article by David Corton on this. I, I thought it, uh, it's illuminating. He says, uh, he's referring to this philosophy. He's not, he's reca recalling what the philosophy is. It's not his own, it's not David Corden's philosophy, but the philosophy of the free market. And it's grounded on the following, he says. It is our human nature to be competitive, individualistic, and materialistic. Our well-being depends on strong leaders with the will to use police and military powers to protect us from one another and on the competitive free forces of a free, unregulated market to channel our individual greed to constructive ends. This competition for survival and dominance, violent and destructive as it may be, is a driving force of evolution. It has been key to human success since the beginning of time, assures that the most worthy rise to leadership, and ultimately works to the benefit of everyone. Of course, not all economies adhere to that, thank God. I, I used to be a geneticist. I was not only trained in that, I taught that, you know. I don't adhere to that. I, at the time, it was even difficult to adhere to that. Now, the, David Corton goes back and says, uh, never mind the story's moral contradictions and its conflict with our own experience with caring and trustworthy friends, family, and strangers. It serves to keep us confused and certain and dependent, dependent on establishment-sanctioned moral authorities to tell us what is right and true. It also supports policies and institutions that actively undermine development of the caring, sharing relationship essential to responsible citizenship in a function, functioning democratic society. By the way, as to the scientific foundations of, at least in evolution, in, in biology, in genetics, the scientific foundations of that uh, are very turbid, very indefinite. Um, it's true that, that the situations where there's a development that uh, follows the lead of the strongest, but uh, other times there's uh, group selection that follows, that in fact fosters cooperation rather than greed and antagonism. And uh, our choice of which uh, model to adopt has much more to do with culture than with science. So it is just a sample of areas in which unidimensionality takes over in the, in the polity, in the collective.
So I haven't seen that in a few examples and haven't seen how we get caught in it. How can we get out of it? Let's consider, again, the three aspects, political, social, and environmental. This time starting with the environmental, then the social, then the political. So I was talking about looking out the window of my study and the, the option of seeing that just as a property. And then the, the much richer, richer, much more nurturing alternative, seeing all that reality in ways that really transcend any imaginable dimension, you know? Up front, of course, there will be the chipmunks and the um, squirrels and the birds and the insects and the butterflies at some times, all sorts of four-legged animals and, and different-legged animals, in fact. And, and, and then, not to, f and the, of course, there's the, the trees and the forest and the ground. And in that ground, not to forget the zillion of different microbes. I mean, the richness, the microbial richness of a square inch of ground is beyond belief, you know. Really. And all it's there, and they all require each other. It's not that they're superimposed, juxtaposed. They're interacting. And so I can feel truly embedded in that world. For a, a quote on more, a more direct, concrete quote on embeddedment and environment, let me pick up this quote from, what's the name? Uh, Jane Goodall, or Goodall, Goodall, I think it is, the primatologist. Um, a woman who spent many, many years studying chimpanzees in Tanzania. Just, just picking up a few items from her writing. She says, when David Greybeard, David is a chimp, by the way, when David Greybeard moved off along a well-marked trail, I followed. When he left the trail and moved through some dense undergrowth near a stream, I was sure I'd lose him for I became hopelessly entangled in the vines. But I found him, down the way, sitting by the water, almost as if he were waiting for me. I looked into his large and lustrous eyes, set so wide apart. They seemed somehow to express his entire personality, his serene self-assured, his inherent dignity. 
as David and I sat there, I noticed a ripe red fruit from an oil nut palm lying on the ground. I held it towards him on the palm of my hand. David glanced at me and reached to take the nut. Then he dropped it, but gently held my hand. I, need no, I needed no words to understand his message of reassurance. He didn't want the nut, but he understood my motivation. He knew I meant well. I meant well. To this day, I remember the soft pressure of his fingers. We had communicated in a language far more ancient than words, a language that we shared with our prehistoric ancestor, a language bring, bridging our two worlds. And I was deeply moved. When David walked up and walked away, I let him go and stayed, stayed there quietly by the murmuring stream, holding on to the experience so that I could know it, I could know it in my heart forever. Further down she says, together the chimpanzees and the baboons and monkeys, the birds and insects, the teeming life of the vibrant forest, the stirrings of the never still waters of the great lake, and the uncountable stars and planets of the solar system formed one whole. All one, all part of the great mystery. And I was part of it too. A sense of calm came over me. More and more often I found myself thinking, this is where I belong. So it, it's so amazing to really discover our intimacy with the world, with animals, with plants, and, and with <laughs> that's that which is behind that. we're not privileged as Jane Goodall is or Goodall uh, to spend time with uh, David the chimpanzee but there, there are other ways in which we connect intimately with the world and one is food the environment comes to us through food, hopefully vegetarian. 
And at home, like Kelly said, marvelous cook, and she guarantees that superb food comes my way, and her way too, and the way of our guests too, of course. And the path of that food is from the garden, or from the market, or from wherever, and, and even before that, just not to make a long story too long. To the kitchen, to the table, to the mouth, to the stomach. And it is the path of love, you know. Sure, at times, I, I, I grant you, there's a need to count calories or cholesterol or whatever, but, but that shouldn't take over. That should not reduce our food to one-dimensionality. In fact, the, the, the table, the dining table, becomes stage, stage for this interaction with the food. And of course, uh, for many, with the divine in the saying of grace, and uh, for all of us, uh, an opportunity to what's called breaking bread, sharing bread with each other. A, a real concrete basis for conviviality. Of course, our first experience with food does not come from a table. It comes from a womb. And uh, for me, this is, at this moment, not just a thought. So I was doing a self-retreat uh, last month. I had a, a very powerful dream in which, basically, I was in the womb and then I was born. I mention that because of the, I mean, the experience can be very intense at times. Even in our subconscious memory. And in our lives, of course, uh, <coughs> after birth came breastfeeding. But breastfeedings is not just food. In the first uh, is it days, at least days, if not weeks, not days, I think, of the mother's mother produces not proper milk, but colostrum. And colostrum is basically a liquid charged with protective agents, antibodies. So that the mother's repertoire, protective repertoire, is passed on to the child, to the infant, to protect him for those, the first period when he or she is not able to build up his or her own protection, of course. Then 
that happens. So uh, I think it's important that we consider the possibility of treating our environment just the way our mothers have treated us. And if, if you are mothers, then you have treated your children. Providing them with protection when they need it and letting them grow in the rich, luxurian way when they're ready. So that diversity becomes possible. And diversity is not just a slogan of the times, you know, a, a political <laughs> appropriate word. It's essential. Let me put a good word for diversity in, in a fundamental way. Ecologists have been studying environments, and they find that environments undergo what is called succession. That's to say, at one time you see a certain type of environment. You look at that environment a hundred years later, of course you compare notes with others, whatever, and it's changed. It's been succeeded by another. So there's a instability in many environments. And they keep changing until they reach what ecologists call the climax, a state where they're unlikely to change anymore, barring any catastrophe. Well, they're stable. They don't change because they've reached climax, they've reached the optimal stage. There's no reason to change. And so, Ecologists have been curious. What gives these environments the stability, this climax quality, is compared with the others that keep failing? And the answer is very simple. It's the richness of the interactions between the different members. If there's a very rich sort of a repertoire of interactions between plants, animals, microbes, fungi, well, and, and this of course is, I mean, all kinds of plants, all kinds of microbes, all kinds of animals. If that is maximized in richness and in number two, then you have a healthy system that survives. Quite the opposite, of course, from mechanized agriculture, which creates systems that are totally unstable, totally we need to control them, sometimes in bizarre and counterproductive ways, like like treating them with uh, chemicals, for instance. 
stuff like that. Chemicals that can hurt us. You know, socially and politically, we have a very similar experiences. Societies that are controlled from the top, Orwellian societies, if you wish, you know, or Orwell, Big Brother kind of thing. It's, we are visiting that a little bit these days. Are not stable. They depend on this extreme control. Look at the incredible thing of the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know. Wow! It was gone without leaving a trace. Why? Because there was no, no really rich interaction. Everything came from the top. I don't know about China. I hope it's different. But anyway, but for me, uh, even closer is the experience of Latin American, Latin American military dictatorships of the last decades. You know, just they didn't leave any trace, except resentment. Casualties, friends of ours and, and friends of all of us who've lost uh, the children to the repression in Argentina and Chile. Horrendous. Not to limit it to those two countries either. And no, no trace of that system. <coughs> One well, quite different item about diversity, which has to do with what I'm trying to do now with teaching, you know. Um, there's a, a scripture, Buddhist scripture, in which the story is told about the various of his main elder disciples getting together to discuss how should one teach the Dharma? So each one of them, Magalyana and Shariputra, I'm not sure, I know how to pronounce the name, sorry. But anyway, um, getting together and each one offering the right style, you know, what they consider to be the way to teach. And so, well, they come to this impasse. I mean, they're, they're very respectful of each other, but still, each one has their own opinions. And um, so they go to the Buddha to ask the Buddha, which is the right way? And the Buddha, as you might have predicted, is it? They're all the right way. All these ways are correct. And in fact, for good measure, he offers his own way of teaching. <laughs> Not trying to supersede anybody. Just saying, we should all teach our own way. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons why I'm so happy to have Joy here 
teaching with me, you know, enriching this retreat. So let me let me say a few more a few more words about the political sphere itself. It's clear to me, must be clear to you too, I'm sure, that democracy can only be participatory. If it's reduced to casting ballots every two or four years, it's a, it's a farce particularly our ballots being so influenced by money and advertisement. We need to nourish the political system constantly. Like, like as I said before, the mother's breastfeeding, the contributing colostrum to protect the system and nourishment to let it continue to develop. And this, by the way, the colostrum, the, the rich antibodies that the political system needs, can only be produced collectively. Because each one of us, and people from different social classes and categories, have different antibodies to offer. Perhaps for the political system, the colostrum cannot be reduced to a few days of nursing, but actually has to be um, a very prolonged one. Now, we are, of course, at a very special historical juncture with the election of the first uh, African-American president. And, and that's no small thing. On top of his origins, ancestry, and makeup, there is his personal presence. I cannot say about his personality, I don't know. But the way he impacts me and many others, his body language, his gestures, his past record as community organizer. I'm not, you know, trying to erect a, a monument to him. I don't know. But, but I, I have to acknowledge, but he impresses me and many others that way, as he can allow change to come up from the grassroots. In fact, he has said, real change only comes from the bottom up. So it's an invitation for us, whether he responds appropriately or not to our participation, he certainly more than any other president that I know. He invites participation. And I hope we 
live up to that invitation, including myself. You know, myself and many others surely get these emails from various movements, in this case, in my case, movements that are on Obama's side, and uh, including Move On, who has, you know, collected a lot of money from Obama and so on. But I was a bit shocked a few days ago when I saw an email from them offering a sticker for victory. Huh. That's not what we need. We don't need to go around bragging uh, success. Not at all. You know, I mean, sure, it's wonderful to rejoice and celebrate if the, if the candidate that you supported won, you know, surely. But uh, flaunting that sticker in uh, your car, in my car, I won. Come on. We need to connect with everybody, regardless of their political opinions, regardless of the way they voted. That's what, that's what this uh, ecological multiplicity of interactions is about, too, you know. After all, let us not forget, we are all, absolutely all, seeking the same thing. Maybe do it in different ways, but our goal is the same, to end suffering. It's clear. So I've come to the end of it, this talk, uh, recognizing that I spread myself thin throughout the spectrum of possibilities. And, but I just wanted to say that there's no limit to this need to find multidimensionality instead of unidimensionality. This is the point, if I can make it blunt. We have a choice of leading privately and collective lives that are either unidimensional or multidimensional. The one-dimensional alternative is favored by our ego part and by the social part made up by the power elites, the elites that have powers. The, the rest, the, the other alternative, the multidimensional alternative, is the one favored by the rest of this being that's not the ego and the rest of the social being that's not the elites. Which one will it be? I'm encouraged by this ecological story of a succession of ecosystem, because it does 
not predict, that's a strong word, but suggest the likelihood that the more multidimensional societies will prevail, just as the more multidimensional ecosystem prevail in nature. It's true, in nature too, occasionally, a few species take over a habitat. We, we have done that, of course. <laughs> Humans have done that <laughs> very grievously, uh, to the point that we may finish the world, this world as we know it, you know, with global warning, warming and, and uh, atomic bombs and whatever. Okay. So, but in ecological systems, okay, occasionally, sure, species can take over. But then the system very soon falls apart. I hope our system falls apart as well. Our concentrated unidimensional system falls apart as well without tremendous destruction and suffering, of course. We are seeing right in front of our eyes the bursting of the financial bubble. A lot of greenback unidimensional dimensionality is going to go up in smoke there. Can we, instead of that, Build, construct our polity, social, political, ecological, from the grassroots, and endowed with solidity and durability. As we nurture the world, the world is bound to respond in kind. Let's try it. Let's trust that. And in the process, how about extending tenderness to the world? It's a gift that's bound to come round back to us. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.